Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, I just want to ask you to go to jointheunion.us. Heed our words, heed the words of President Biden. Get involved in saving American democracy this fall by getting involved in your states and your communities to ensure that pro-democracy candidates win. Go to jointheunion.us and join the fight. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Waj Ali, columnist at The Daily Beast and a senior fellow at the Western States Center. He's previously been a New York Times contributing op-ed writer, CNN commentator, host for HuffPost, and also a recovering attorney and playwright. Earlier this year, he published his first book, Go Back to Where You Came From, and other helpful recommendations on how to become American. And it's available wherever fine books are sold. Today, he's coming to us from Alexandria, Virginia. Waj, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So before we talk about President Biden's speech that he gave last night as we're recording this, Waj, I want to talk a little bit about your background. So you were an attorney and a playwright. I certainly know plenty of people who were who went to law school who, even if they took the bar, never practiced. But going from lawyering and playwriting to writing for politics on a full-time basis, how did that happen? Sir, I am a licensed attorney still, and I did practice. I want to say that because we're in the swamp, the nether regions, the groinal area of America, D.C., Virginia, where, as you said, accurately, a lot of people go to law school, they get licensed, but they don't practice. So I actually did practice, still licensed. And while I was in law school, in my first year of law school, instead of going and doing the what they call OIC, on-campus interviews, and join a corporate law firm, which I probably should have done if I was a smart immigrant or son of immigrants, but instead I ended up being a failure. Obviously, I decided to put on my play, and that play is called The Domestic Crusaders, which is the day in the life of a Pakistani-American family post 9-11. And I think I must have been like 23 or 24, and we put it up with our own money. I literally dressed the set within my living room, and my grandmother, who was alive at the time, I remember she came out of her room, she goes, Beta, are we moving? How come no one's told me? And we're like, no, no, don't worry. The, the living room furniture will be back in two days. My mom made like food and chai for the cast. My dad drove the U-Haul. It was like one of those DIY setups, right? And so we did this play, and the play was a success. But in 2004, 2005, I swear to God, people are like, the people will not appreciate a play with an ethnic cast. Translation. The whites will not be able to identify with the darkies. And so we got rejected despite having this successful play and these successful stage readings. And I remember it was about 2009 when my Muslim brother, Barack Hussein Obama, it was 2008 where I'm like, holy crap, America might vote for my Muslim brother, Barack, who prays towards Mecca. And was born in Kenya, please. And was born in Kenya and has worked with the Muslim Brotherhood to replace the Constitution with Sharia. All of it was true. If you voted for Obama, thank you, oh, liberals for implementing the Muslim agenda. So it was like 2008, 2009 now, I was just graduating law school. I was probably 27. I'm like, this country might actually elect a black man. And so that's when I thought I can bring back this play. And maybe I was a few years ahead of my time. And I'm going to promote this play and produce this play in New York. 
And on 9-11-2009, we premiered the Domestic Crusaders at New Eurekan Poets Cafe. And it broke the box office records at that time for that really respected off-Broadway venue for five weeks. And then the play got published. And what I'll end with is this, is that that play, which got rejected by everyone and people said no one would care about it, just had its 20th re-release anniversary and it was published again by McSweeney's and it's being taught in universities and high schools across America. And while I was doing that during the day, I was doing law. At night, I was writing these political essays that you were talking about, you know, using my broken down, broke ass Fujitsu laptop without wireless connected to my yellow Ethernet cable. And then late at night, early in the morning, I was trying to promote the play. So I didn't sleep for like a year. It took me a couple of years, but I pulled it off. And the same thing is, is I remember when it happened, everyone's like, playwright and attorney, what the F are you? And I'm like, dude, I'm still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. Well, that's a great question to continue to ask yourself or be able to ask yourself. Let me ask you this. Do you still have family in Pakistan? Obviously, with the to say that it's I, I watched some video of it this morning, Waj, and it's I can't describe it because just watching the scenes of it, the, you know, in Pakistan, not a small country. Nope. And so to say that a third of it is underwater is, I mean, unprecedented doesn't begin to say it. Yeah, Pakistan, uh, the country of my parents' birth, a country of over 200 million people, a country that even though, like so many countries, is not responsible for gas house emissions, is the unfortunate victim of climate change. And like you said right now, suffering from devastating floods that have impacted a third of the country, so do the math, a third of 200 million. And, you know, my family's from Karachi, and even though they're better off than these absolute scenes of horror that you have seen, right? My uncles are like, dude, there's like, water is like outside, like like we can like, just like stand in the water. And, you know, a country that suffers from many challenges, in poor infrastructure, corruption, bad drinking water. So you can imagine for some people, it's like, dude, this is judgment day. What like what have we done to deserve this? And it's one of those situations where if you see these images of utter horror and carnage and that does not move you towards empathy or that does not move you towards saying, you know what, we might have political differences, but I think climate change is a bipartisan killer. I don't think it cares about how we vote. We should do something about it. You got to pinch yourself, man, and check to see if you're still alive. The one thing I would say to the folks in, I mean, I think everyone should be pro-environment, is that, you know, they're like the earth, the earth, the earth. Like, let's be clear. The earth is going to be fine. It's going <laughs> to sure. be fine because it's going to be here another four or five billion years. So, like, it'll figure itself out. We, on the other hand, might not. That's what everyone says. Like, the earth is going to blow up. The earth is going to die. I'm like, no, 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 no. Earth is going to shit us out. Like, we're going to be like a bad, like, burrito that they're like, we shouldn't have eaten that mistake, learned it, never going to invest in human beings again. We're going to die. The earth is going to flourish you know, after we're gone. So it's like, if you literally do not want to be genocidal, if you actually want to invest in the human species, I don't care what your politics are. Hell, man, if you don't care about Pakistan, look what's happening in Mississippi. Look what's happening in California. Look what's friggin' the infrastructure is melting in Europe. Like I say all this and we talk about, you know, the political divides of this country and we talk about like, is the modern Republican Party, maybe we should both sides it. And what I say is this, the modern Republican Party is not your daddy's political party. It's not your granddaddy's Republican Party. I'll say this when it comes to climate change to connect the dots, just to show you what an outlier the United States conservative movement has become and the GOP has become. In Europe, where they're dealing with fascism and white supremacy, the conservative movements in Europe they're like, you know what? We agree in climate change. The U.S. Republican Party is like, no, no, no. We're the outlier. We're so extreme that our orange leader, Donald Trump, thinks it's a hoax created by China. 
just to give people a perspective about where we are and what we're dealing with in America. So I was in Kansas, of all places, like three years ago. I was going around the state and meeting with different people. And some folks were telling me about a county in central Kansas, I can't remember where it was, where they had received federal funds to upgrade their water treatment facility. And the conservative county commission, county council, whatever it was, said, we shouldn't spend this money on a water treatment plant. We should send this money back and say, build the wall. Wow. <laughs> and I'm like, but your people won't have water to drink. And now we see this in Flint, Michigan, Jackson, Mississippi, right? Like we are not Pakistan even, right? Like we are a country who has consistently had ready access to water infrastructure, the ability to replace or repair said infrastructure. And now we just don't do it. You could tell a lot about someone's priorities and concerns judged by what they choose to invest in, their time, their money, and their actions, right? And you look at the United States, the most powerful, wealthy country in the world, and you mentioned Pakistan. With Pakistan, okay, challenging country, right? Developing country, uh, beset with so many problems. What's the excuse for the United States? If someone's looking at what's happening in Jackson, Mississippi right now, where not only they cannot drink water, they're told to take showers with their mouth closed because the water is so polluted. You don't want to risk getting that water. Yeah, the it. last time I heard that was when I had to travel to Russia many years ago for work when I took a shower. Exactly. Bring it all full circle. So what happens with a cult, a death cult, is that it paralyzes your mind. Fear, hate, bigotry paralyzes you to the point where you're like, hmm, fictional invaders coming from a caravan. Do I invest in a bullshit wall that is not going to get built? Or should I give my people water? Hmm, water, bullshit wall. Water, bullshit wall. I'm going to invest in the wall. And it's like, I don't know if you ever read the Old Testament. This has been coming up in my head a lot recently. Like, if you ever, if you ever read the story of Moses, right? I don't care if you believe or don't believe. I'm a Muslim. I believe in these stories. But you don't have to. It's a parable. You sit there and you read those stories. I remember I used to read these stories. I'm like, nah, man, this is just an exaggeration. Like, here comes Moses, throws down a staff, swallows up the other staff, warns people about the plagues. Next thing you know, plagues are actually happening. Frogs are dropping from the sky. Locusts, blood in the water. Dude, if it was me, I see the frogs coming from the sky. I'm like, yo, Moses, I'm with you, bro. I'm with you. I don't need to see any more plagues. I'm with you. And then even then people are like, nah, I'm going to go with the Pharaoh. Then Moses says, all right, come with me. Friggin' Red Sea parts. The Red Sea swallows up these people. I'm like, dude, I'm with you, bro. I'm with you. Then Moses says, just give me 40 days, y'all. I'm going to go up to the mountain, talk to God, come back. Give me 40 days. But if by the 41st day I'm not back, you start worshiping a calf. Just give me 40 days. Moses comes back and people are like, nah, man, that Moses guy, he was a fraud. I'm going to worship this calf. And you're like, there's no way that people can be this self-destructive, this ignorant, this reckless. And then you see what's happening in America right now. You're like, I understand the story of Moses. It all makes sense. Right. Well, uh, yeah, as we've said repeatedly on this show is it does not matter how much information human beings have available to them. They'll still make the same crazy ass decisions, whether or not it's 2022, it was the 1200s, or as you noted, Moses 5,000 years ago. So it just doesn't matter. But let's turn that to what we saw as we're recording this last night with President Biden giving a speech on the state of American democracy, the threats to it in Philadelphia. He started with the utilizing the MAGA language, ultra MAGA language, you know, probably late spring. And you saw that it clearly upset the wingers, as I'll call them, because they know it's a threat. And they know that for a lot of Republicans, let's call it 25 percent, they still believe in limited government, individual liberty, and they got no place else to go. But like they don't have to be part of this. They don't have to be part of anything. So now, you know, the president earlier in the week, again, as we're recording, 
says these are semi-fascists, some of this stuff. Again, Fox News, and they all go bananas, just go crazy. Biden gives this speech, and he was attempting to put the whole both sides bullshit to rest. You're either for democracy or you're not. There is no middle ground. And I'm not someone who likes to be binary in my life. I think that typically binary choices are bad choices, but sometimes they're the only ones you have. So give me a sense of what you thought as you were watching the president speak. I mean, it was such a political speech. How dare the president of the United States of America, who was elected through a democratic election, actually give a speech about politics? My God. And he was in front of two Marines, like Republican and Democratic presidents before him who were standing sentry. I mean, that was the biggest outrage of the day, not the fact that we have the GOP as a radicalized, weaponized, counter-majoritarian force that promotes the big lie and the deep state conspiracy and the QAnon conspiracy and is backing a president who every day seems to... New revelations show that he just took a bunch of classified documents that betrayed our national security and perhaps our soldiers who are exposed now in fields. I'm being very sarcastic, ladies and gentlemen, who have never heard me before. I'm doing a commentary very quickly upon the hot takes that were given, unfortunately, by mainstream media. I know we're going to talk about that in a second, based on President Biden's much-needed speech that should have happened two years ago. Just to recap, a week ago, and we're recording this before Labor Day, but in front of Democratic fundraisers in Maryland before his first speech, Biden just casually said, I believe this, you know, MAGA and Trump philosophy is, quote, semi-fascism. As you mentioned, Reed, hit dogs holler. Fox lost its damn mind, right? Sean Duffy, white nationalist Stephen Miller, all these folks. How dare he? How dare he? But you finally saw the majority say, damn it. Thank you, Biden and Democrats, for calling out this extremist force that is attacking our democracy. So he goes in Philadelphia and he for... I think it was a 30-minute speech. I thought it was a very strong speech. No BS, connects the dots, calls out Trump, calls out MAGA Republicans, says they're an active threat, not just to democracy, but also the Constitution, to equality, to equal rights, separates Democrats from Republicans, says we at least are staying up for democracy, law and order, accountability, will protect women's rights. They are not. I didn't see him get angry. I saw him get passionate. He has some Biden one-liners because there was a heckler. He even let the heckler heckle and said he has a right to heckle and act foolish. And he also did something which Trump never did, is that he extended an olive branch to Republicans. See, what he was doing very deliberately by saying MAGA Republicans, even though I think you and me both realize that MAGA Republican is ultra MAGA is GOP now, right? It's the same synonym. But for the 25 percent, very wisely, he said, I know good Republicans. I know there are people out there who care about this country. He did a very smart olive branch to say, you do not have to be part of this extremist movement. And I know you're not hateful. I'm specifically talking about MAGA Republicans, not all Republicans. And so it was an invite for the rest of those Republicans who are discussing what happened to the party to come and join the majority and the Democratic Party to stand up and actively fight for the Constitution, equality and democracy. And as I have been saying, and I'm sure many folks at Lincoln Project have been saying for years now, Democrats need to punch a bully in the face. Take these mother effers out. You can't both sides fascism. You can't give fascism a cookie and expect that it does better. No, it takes your cookie and it takes all the cookies and then it kills you. Right. That's what fascism does. And so I'm with you. I'm not a there's a light side of the force and the dark side of the force, us versus them binary thinker. But we're dealing with an aggressive, radicalized, weaponized, counter majoritarian force. And if you don't believe me, I give you January 6th 
And if you don't believe me, I give you the gaslighting of January 6th and the promotion of the big lie. And by coddling it, many of our institutions, including Biden, who is an institutionalist, and many Democrats who are terrified of their own shadow thought, oh, 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 you know, we can win them over. You can't. You got to punch the bully in the face. And by punching the bully in the face, as of right now, Democrats are being rewarded in the polls and the special election. So I thought, if you see my tweets, I said, bravo, best speech Biden's given as a president yet. The bar is low for him. He's not a great speaker, but most important speech, a pivotal speech, because the last thing I'll say is the president has the power. The president has a bully pulpit. Just look at Donald Trump. What the president says guides the headlines. It influences the narrative. And when the president calls out this movement as extremist, it forces institutions and media institutions in particular to finally confront it as the threat it is, or at least talk about it. And that was the big takeaway for me is that, yes, the gloves are off. Dark Brandon has risen. He's called it out. He's named it. He's defined it. And either you're either with us for democracy or you're not. And I think it is okay even for journalists in America to be biased in favor of democracy and against fascism. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. So, you know, this is a story I, I haven't told in a while on the podcast, but the listeners have always indulged me, is that probably in late 2018, you know, into 2019, I would go to a lot of these salons, uh, very worried and thoughtful Republicans. Rick would come to some. These are salons where you guys just talk, discuss. Right. And it was all about Trump, you know, and they were usually in some very fancy home in Washington, D.C. And they'd be like, we have to make Trump look like a loser. We have to do this. We have to do that. And Rick and I would be and this occasionally there'd be other people too, like, you know, that ain't going to work. Right. Like, I know you guys want to do this and you want to feel good about doing it. Almost big D Democratic sort of ethos, right? Institutionalist ethos. But like that ain't going to work. That's just not going to happen. And, you know, I know that for us, that's how we saw it from the get go, which was, do I want to climb down, as Rick says, be the anthropologist of the worst person on earth? No, we don't. But we understood what we had to do, which was stay in his face all day, every day and not give him an inch. Like we always knew what he was because he said it. And for so many of these strong men, they say what they want to do, either in their writings or in their speeches or in their actions. Like it's never a secret. We even started saying at the end of last year, like, democracy's on the ballot in 2022. And that's like what we said over and over and over again. And when the president of the United States says, yes, I agree with you, you know, that makes you sort of feel like, okay, well, you know, maybe we're not just Cassandra screaming into the wind. Exactly. I always joke that I was a brown Cassandra and like I was cursed with like calling it out and I've been accurate and right like many folks, oftentimes people of color, but we're not rewarded for it, right? Like we get killed. And meanwhile, the worst people who are wrong about everything keep failing up, right? But when the president says it, you're like, see, told you. And it's not like I told you. It's like, I'm trying to save the nation here. So just like listen to other people and listen to Biden. So the fact that you have the president echoing what many of us have said and what many of us have understood for years, not only gives us that validation, but it's like, okay, finally, you have the most powerful man on earth with the equity and the muscles flexing against this movement. And when that happens, that changes the discourse. When it comes to changing the discourse, the reason why they're also fripping out the wingers, as you call them, is they're used to what I call this double standard, where they get to be absolutely obnoxious and cruel to the rest of us. They get to call us pedophiles. Reed, you and I are of that age, my friend, where if someone called us a pedophile, those were fighting words. Like if someone called you a pedophile, one of you would have to go. Nowadays, like, you know, we get so numb to it when we shouldn't be numb to it. Like, you should still be shocked that they openly just call us pedophiles. And not just pedophiles, we're part of an international ring 
where we kidnap and rape children. Like, this is just casual discourse now, right? So much of it based on QAnon, which in and of itself is a cult weirdness. It's a domestic terror threat, according to the FBI. I always want to remind people that the FBI came with a memo before the 2020 election, a memo that got leaked that the QAnon is now a domestic terror threat with the power of radicalizing individuals and groups. And now QAnon candidates are winning their elections as Republicans. And as our listeners heard on a, an episode just two or three weeks ago, a lot of QAnon adherents are not like the Ted Kaczynski's of their communities. Right. These are older Americans with not a lot to do. Sometimes they're yoga moms. Right. There's a lot more folks that like if you looked around and you suddenly they had a Q tattooed on their forehead, you'd go, what the hell just happened? Right. They're driving electric hybrid vehicles, you know, and they have a juicer at home. All right. So that shows the mainstreaming of extremism. Right. And I think the reason why they're really freaked out is like, oh, shit. The rules don't apply. We were supposed to just hit you and you were supposed to take it. You're Charlie Brown and we're Lucy. We take away the football. You fall on your ass and we laugh at you. And then we do it again and again and again. And then we whine about civility, but we give you cruelty. Wait a second. You're punching back. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And you're exposing our weak chin. These men and women have the weakest chins on earth, Reed. You know that. It's a disgrace to snowflakes to call them snowflakes. They're the weakest of the earth the most fragile porcelain teacups. And then what you're seeing is the Democratic base for years wanted fighters. Like, fighters need to apply. Please, fighters step up. And what you're seeing with Fetterman, Mallory McMorrow, Newsom, like them or don't like them, right? They show passion. And that passion was rewarded by the base. You're like, finally, someone's fighting Mac. So all of this, if I was a winger, I'm like, oh, shit. Biden has become dark Biden and he's playing by new rules that we're not used to. And you're seeing them crumble in real time. And I believe, like you said, sober historians of fascism and authoritarianism, they have been speaking up for the past five years, Reed, and they've been warning. And they've kept saying, you have to not give an inch on language, on knowledge, on history, on books, on institutions. You can't give a fascist or an authoritarian an inch because this is how fascism gets normalized. It never happens overnight. It happens through complicity and ignorance and laziness. And lo and behold, if you don't believe me, look at the Republican Party five years after Trump. It's right in front of you. And so let's talk about that a little bit, Wash, because you spend a lot of time, I think, in the media landscape. We're almost a decade into this noxious experiment gone wrong. And yet so many and it could be members of the media, it could be members of the D.C. elite, it could be individual voters still don't buy what they're seeing. This is how it is. Let me explain to people who aren't in the media ecosystem, and I hope I can connect the dots for you. I've been in this game for a while now, longer than a hot minute. You gave me a very kind introduction, you know, wrote for The New York Times, worked for CNN, co-hosted a show, do podcasts, still in the media. The media, especially in America, is corporate media. If People tell you that the North Star is not ratings, clicks, and money. They're either lying to you or they're extremely naive and gullible. I'm just giving it to you real. I hate to be so cynical. It's ratings, clicks, and money, not the truth. That's the problem with corporate media is that for journalism, which is the fourth estate, your priority no longer is holding truth to power or reporting. It becomes seeking access to power and seeking ratings for the sake of ratings and profit. Okay, when it comes to Trump... According to the former CEO of CBS, I love the honesty. In 2016, he said openly, Trump might not be good for America, but he's great for business. That was Les Moonves. Les Moonves of CBS and Jeff Zucker of CNN. 
All around good guys. <laughs> all around good guys who, by the way, Les Moonves had to quit due to numerous sexual harassment allegations. And Zucker, who helped make Trump when it came to The Apprentice, right, said the same thing. Even when Ben Smith asked him, like, last year, do you regret, you know, the free coverage and helping Trump and, like, being his confidant and conciliary? He said no. Even though Trump, ladies and gentlemen, I want to remind you, threatened CNN reporters. They had to evacuate the CNN building. People forget because there's so much shit that happens that CNN had to literally remember that they had to like do live coverage from outside because of threats. So they don't mind that their own employees and reporters read have a target on their back. So now you're like, dude, this has happened for seven years. You saw the January 6th violent insurrection. Explain to me why Mick Mulvaney gets a six figure job at CBS in 2022. How does Chris Christie get to work on ABC News? It's because, as the CBS News president said, according to a leaked memo, we think Republicans might win in the midterms. We need access. And so when the entire business operates in this way, it is not in your interest to confront or see or view the fascist that is right in front of you. You have to will yourself and delude yourself into believing that it's a normal ecosystem. Right. We can simply engage in both sides. I scratch your back. You scratch my back. That's how things were. You know, what I always tell people is after Trump won, so many within this incestuous ecosystem, Reed, were so desperate to will normalcy on an abnormal actor just because that's what they were used to. They're like, OK, OK, maybe if we just play by the same rules. Uh, Trump will somehow adapt. Maybe if we play by the same rules, you know, I'll get my scoop. You'll get your interview. I'll, I'll give you a love tap here and there. You'll push back and everyone wins. I get a book deal. You get on TV. It's business as usual. And even now, they refuse to recognize or realize that you cannot placate, coddle, win over a fascist. Eventually, as we have seen through history, corporations, the powerful, they believe that they are immune from fascism. They believe it's business as usual. It won't affect us. Fascism won't come for us until it does. This is why they haven't learned. This is why they won't learn. This is why I believe mainstream media will continue failing us in this moment where democracy is under assault. The media, political media, by definition, has always had somewhat of an adversarial role. That's its job. Its job was to be an imperfect tribune, but a tribune of and for the people against the big interest. Now, again, we could go back to Hearst and all sorts of other people where this has not necessarily been the case. And, you know, even in the United States, for most of our existence, we've had federalist newspapers and Republican, Democratic newspapers, whatever. So these are not new things. But the difference was is that nobody was like, we should get rid of democracy. But I think that now you're talking about the access piece, which is there was a time even as I watched, you know, my dad who worked on the Hill for many years, where you could build relationships and you knew once in a while that the person on the other end of the line was going to do something that made you super unhappy. But it was like, this is what happens, right? This is the cost of doing business. Now it's like, well, I don't even want to attempt to do that because what if they never call me back? Well, who fucking cares? Because you know what? They're not going to tell you anything that's newsworthy anyway. You're giving a platform to propagandists and liars, right? Like, let me put it this way. So like CNN, when it comes to the coverage of the speech that you and I are talking about, that Biden in Pennsylvania, CNN has went through a merger. It has new leadership. New leadership says that it wants to court both Republicans and Democrats. He said this just a couple of weeks ago, right? He has a new president. Zucker's out. You have Chris Licht who come in, right? And you have John Malone, 
who is a right-wing billionaire who's one of the major board members who's friends with Trump. Okay. And Chris Litt now goes and does a tour of the Capitol. And it was revealed that he explicitly tried to court Republicans and ask them, like, how we can make our reporting better. Already red flags. Why is the head of a news organization asking either Republican or Democrat how to report and cover the news? Just report the news. Cover the news. Report the truth, right? So we see Biden give his talk yesterday, his speech. And like clockwork, now you see CNN, right? What did they talk about? They didn't talk about the threat to democracy. They didn't talk about the fact that Donald Trump has been on Truth Social for the past week with verbal diarrhea, promoting QAnon talking points and literally promising to pardon violent insurrections. I don't even see that in the news. And basically admitting to taking, you know, highly classified documents. I took the classified documents that I declassified that were planted by the FBI. You're like, what? Yeah, none of that was covered. Instead, the talking point that they created, and you know it was a talking point sent by management because it was repeated by the anchors, is why was Biden standing in front of two Marines? And why did he politicize the speech? That is the sole story on CNN. So it shows you how CNN now is trying to cater and court what they assume is the 50% of the country Republicans, but in doing so, you are giving a platform to fascists, propagandists, and a counter-majoritarian force who, by the way, still hate you. The funny thing is, is I saw a tweet from Jenna Ellis and a bunch of these wingers. You think that they were now all of a sudden on CNN's side? You think that they all of a sudden love CNN? They're mocking CNN. You know why? Because now you're weak. You're weak, you're groveling, and guess what? We're going to put our boots on your neck. And you know what I say? If this is what you're doing, if you're compromising journalism, your own employees, good journalists who work there, and the truth for the sake of winning over some Republicans in the hope of getting money, you know what? You deserve to be humiliated. You deserve to be the cuck and the simp. But look, here's the thing, though. I've said this previously. is This is really to get like 10,000 more eyeballs an hour on the day side. That's it. And what I don't understand, Waj, is that they're the only profitable piece of this whole merger to begin with. So now it's like, let's go mess with it, right? Like, how good a business do you have to be? So to your point, it comes back to an activist shareholder who's a conservative who's like, this is how I want you to cover it. Like, okay, but we're a media organization. But I think you're right. It's a corporate media organization, one that is going to cater to an individual. And look, this is what we say about the movement. One is that the movement is well-organized well-resourced, and relentless. Second, they are not without significant media outlets of their own. They have so many, right? If you go to the top 100 podcasts in the U.S., top 100 on Apple or whatever, 20 of them, maybe 25, are Dan Bongino, Ben What's-His-Name, Bannon, all of them, right? These are not people without outlets, right? And so now CNN and a lot of others have said, eh, as Josh Holmes said right after Election Day in 2020, he was on background, but everybody assumes it's him. What's the harm in humoring them? That's right. By humoring them, you're going to have fascism. By humoring them, you're going to be under their boot. And so, you know, the funny thing is that you mentioned these podcasts and the funding. You know, this is what, when everyone says that it's liberal media, I always laugh because I'm like, if you just look at the wizards behind the curtain, you realize it's not liberal media. It tilts to the right because we do this both sides fake equivalents to try to cater and win over this extremist minority that will never be won over. I want to repeat this to everyone. You cannot win them over. They do not want to sit there and hold our hand and do kumbaya, invite us to our barbecue. They want power 
by any means necessary. And you have power that has money, people like John Malone, who don't care about fascism or democracy. They care about their bottom line. And CNN has an ability here to take a stand. But nope, they're going to freaking take this jewel and just going to put dirt over it. You just just watch my prediction six months from now. It's going to be a ratings disaster. Journalists are going to leave. Everyone's going to mock them. The Matt Walsh's, Ben Shapiro and all the rest are going to humiliate them. The right wing base that they so eagerly covet are becoming more and more radicalized to the point, Reed, they're leaving Fox because Fox is not radical enough for them. They're going to Newsmax and One American News Network and Bongino and in these other places. And I want to lay to rest this whole notion that the media is liberal. The media is capitalist. Listen to Les Moonves. Listen to Zucker. Listen to Chris Litt. Listen to Malone. They're telling you. They're not hiding it. They're telling you. The long-term interest is ratings and money. And I believe, and this is the stuff that I've said, forget about democracy, forget about accountability, forget about justice, forget about truth. You know, we're all crazy here. If you want money, if you have passion, and if you represent the fight of the people, people will show up. Like, no one's ever done that. Like, let's have a media network where we say, F you Trump and F you fascist and F you MAGA, you're deplorable. And let's bring on Rick Wilson and Waj again to laugh at them with this two-minute clip that went viral, right? I know many of your Lincoln Project listeners remember that two-minute viral clip. Rick Wilson and I very quickly were invited to do a serious conversation, seven minutes on uh, Lemon, to talk about how Trump and Mike Pompeo ridicule journalists and in particular women. Sober conversation. Two minutes in that conversation, we have a lot of fun. Rick says, Trump can't even place Ukraine on the map. Don Lemon loses his shit. Rick has fun. I have fun. Clip goes viral. To this day, people love the clip. Everyone thinks it's hilarious. CNN thinks it's hilarious. Puts it on its main page. You wait for a day and a half for bad faith outrage from the conservative machine to stoke it up. Then CNN and everyone says, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Then all these other colleagues of ours say, how dare Rick and Wajahat Ali make fun of them? How dare you? Here's us wagging your finger. And we're like, they are deplorable. Why are you guys bending the knee to bad faith actors? This is what I've said. I had a conversation last year with someone and I said, if you stand up to this, you will be better off. It was a particular thing. I said, if you do not, what will happen is media will turn and you will follow them all in on the authoritarian talking point. And that's what happens Waj, every time. And this is what I understand. What are you so afraid of? I mean, I don't understand what they're so afraid of. You know what it is? It's an incestuous network. When I talk about D.C. and New York City, when it comes to media, politics and business, I would rather poke both my eyes out with forks than ever live in Washington, D.C. again. And my parents live there. So that's the only reason I'd go back. Yeah. And I, I live in Virginia away from it. And I came here from California for my wife because I'm married way up. My wife is uh, smarter than me, harder than me. And she's a doctor. Well, who among us haven't? Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I can't play that game, Reed. But I can tell you to quote George Carlin that it's a big club and you ain't in it. And in this club, <laughs> right. they play by their own rules. It's an incestuous club. They go to the same churches, same synagogues, same temples, same golf clubs. They date each other, have sex with each other, marry each other, cheat on each other. And they're friends with each other. And there is an aspect of this where they can't see. It's like when you're too close to the elephant, you can't see it. And they're blinded by this. They're blinded by privilege, by power, by access to power. And they're also blinded by their quote unquote friendships with fascists. Oh, I know him. He does a good barbecue. He's not that bad. In the green room, he doesn't really mean it. Let me tell you this. I'll share a secret with you. CNN green room. I was with CNN for a year, but I used to be on there all the time. In the green room, 90% of the time, right before I used to go on air and say debate with a, a winger, that winger, nearly every single one of them except two people, I can name the two, hated Trump. That conservative 
that Republican that went on air with me and defended Trump talking points spent 20 minutes in the green room telling me how much they hate Trump, how they think he's toxic, and they looked down upon MAGA. And then we went on TV and did it. And I said a couple of times, you know, you don't have to do this. And the question is, well, why did they do it? Because this is how their bread is buttered. They're too afraid to leave. No one wants to be exiled from their tribe. And then when it comes to the Lincoln Project, and I know you have a lot of critics and a lot of progressives say, like, why do you work with them sometimes or talk to them or go on their podcast? I'm like, listen, I disagree with them on a lot of stuff, but they called them out. They took risks. They got exiled from the tribe. Instead of crawling back, they stood their ground. They're punching. Hopefully they're effective and hopefully they can win over some folks. And you know, Reed and Rick knows and a few others know how they turned on you and how so many of your colleagues that you still talk to, I'm sure you're still on the same WhatsApp with them, they know and they confess to you that this is a turd, a dangerous flaming turd that will burn down this country. But because they're part of that same group, that clique, and they need to eat, they're going along with fascism. Well, listen, I'll tell you this. We found this out, I guess, a couple of months ago, and I think it was the LA Times had done a FOIA request of the Justice Department. And we didn't know this, that Mark Meadows had sent an opposition research file on us, naming me, Rick Stewart, and others at the Lincoln Project, including a bunch of totally innocent, not involved people, to Bill Barr, then the sitting attorney general of the United States, like I think November 11th after the election. And so when you talk about this stuff, it's real. It has real consequences, but we still get up every day and we do it. And that's the thing that I've always thought is, you know, we, as a political person, again, me being a notable example because I started there, is a lot of folks graduate from college. Maybe they were young Republicans, college Republicans. They go to D.C. They work on Capitol Hill. They work at a whatever. Maybe they work at a presidential administration. But the vast majority of them go home, right? They go back to normal, healthy, productive lives, families, joy, all of the other stuff. There's a few who stay there. And to stay there, you must make decisions. And I remember my dad once told me this story where he was in the office of a very prominent Republican in the 80s. And my dad said, oh, this guy, I just, I just can't stand him. And the guy looked at my dad and said, well, you know, if you really want to get him, you have to spend a little bit of every day working on it. And my dad said, what? He goes, yeah, if you really want to ruin that guy, you have to spend part of every day making sure you're screwing that guy. And my dad was like, that seems like a lot of work. <laughs> like, I just don't like the guy, right? But that's the ethos, right? And to your point about, I mean, again, being on the political side, I was an advanced guy. We traveled together. We lived together. We dated the same people. We hung out at the same bars, right? You know, we worked in different offices, same offices, whatever. And anytime one of those chains got broken, right, it was a trauma inside this little bubble. The Beltway is a perfect, you know, sort of analog for it. Everybody wants to be relevant. And we were actually having a conversation about this this morning, which was, you know, talking about CNN, which is like, well, you know, these people have plenty of money, right? How much more money do you need? And they were like, well, well we're asking the wrong question, Wash. The question is like, what do they do if they're not on air four hours a day? And then what do they do? And I'm like, well, you know what I would do? I would go raise goats in Portugal, right? <laughs> like, that's what I would do. <laughs> and you know what? Very smart, because Portugal is one of those places that went through its fascism moment. So it probably has 20 years of like, you know, some normalcy and the food is really good and the weather's great. But you mentioned it and I'm glad you mentioned it. And it's something that I forgot to mention, even though it was in my mind as I was monologuing as usual, is that relevancy, relevancy, being in the mix, close to power. Right. If I'm not an anchor on TV, who am I? 
this is a plum gig. I'll never get this shot again, and you probably won't. And so I have to make a Faustian bargain. I have to rationalize certain choices. You know what? If I just tilt it a little bit, I can still land a punch once in a while. If I criticize Biden's speech, even though I know this is a bullshit criticism, I'll still keep my job. I'll subsidize my kids' education. I'll still be relevant. I'll be in the mix and I'll get them next time. And those are the type of rationalizations and the concessions bit by bit by bit read, as you know, in this toxic DC ecosystem that eventually over a little bit of time completely changes the person so that when they look at themselves in the mirror 10 years from now, they're completely different from when they entered. No, and look, there are two guys that were, you know, best of friends, haven't spoken to him in over two years, right? Senior positions within the Trump administration telling me, oh, no, 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 it's better if I'm there. But you know as well as I do, you know, that the abnormal becomes normal. Another guy who I worked with for Arnold Schwarzenegger, of all people, dear old friend, is now running as a MAGA wannabe for Congress in Pennsylvania. He's all in. And I think that once you cross that river, Maybe people will cross back. Maybe they wake up when and if Trump ever goes, whatever the definition of that is. I think a lot of people will. But even if he didn't run again, even if he said, I'm retiring from public life and you never heard from him again, the truth is, is that the, you know, the cancer's in the system at this point. I completely agree with you. That's what I was going to say. I'm glad you took us there, is that Trump will go in some form, either through age or self-destruction and competence. I don't think he's going to spend a day in prison, but he might become political kryptonite. Trumpism is here to stay. And I think the reason why it's so important for those who are listening to not be apathetic and cynical is you have to fight. You have to get up every day and you have to fight, especially fascism, because they're playing for all the marbles. And if you don't believe me, look at your school boards in your community. Look at your school boards. Look at your health boards. Look at your poll uh, watchers. They're going precinct by precinct. They get up every day. They're organized. They're well-funded. They're zealous. And I've always said that you could give me a flabby, moderate majority, or you could give me a small, zealous, committed minority. I'll take the minority any day, and I'll cut through you like butter. Every day, I'll win that fight. And when people listen to us, sometimes they say, well, man, I know things are bad, but what can I do? And I want to say this. Never underestimate the power of the majority, but also never underestimate the power of you, the person who might consider themselves to be a nobody. Because in that school board, what we have seen is when the majority pushes back. Now, I'm talking about they're just average Jose's and Joe's parents. When they say, F you, I'm not going to sit there and allow you to ban books. Guess what, guys? We win because they're loud, but they're in the minority. We're bigger. We have the numbers, but the majority has to flex and bring it full circle. When the president of the United States of America, who has the biggest pulpit, says what he says and calls them out as MAGA and extremists and enemies and threat to democracy, he's giving you license, invitation and a green light and space to fight back. Trump did it for the insurrectionists. Biden now slowly but surely is doing it for those people, regardless of our differences, which are numerous, who at the very least say, you know what? It's an imperfect country, but God damn it, it's a democracy. And this country belongs to all of our kids. Even those who come from shithole countries and those who have ovaries and those who might be LGBTQ and those who might be brown skinned, white, rust belt, it belongs to all of us. And we're going to make sure that these extremists don't take this dream away from us. So for those who are listening, don't get that discouraged, but be aware. And instead of throwing in the towel, you got to get up and fight and do something. And, you know, I have very limited superpowers. This is what I do. I write. I get on podcasts. Am I changing people's hearts and minds? I don't know, man. But I got to do something. Well, amen to that. I'm not sure we could end it any better. 
Waj, before we let you get out of here, where can everybody find your writing and where can they find you on social media? On the Twitters, I'm at Wajahatali. We host a podcast. I co-host it with Daniel Moody called Democracy-ish. Find it where any podcast is found. Uh, Rick Wilson was a guest of ours. Hopefully, we'll have you read in the near future. I write columns for the Daily Beast and Medium. And if you can, I wrote a book a couple of months ago called Go Back to Where You Came From and other helpful recommendations on how to become American, which got a lot of love. So if you can, pick that book up. And it's about trying to love a country that doesn't always love you back and fighting for a country that always doesn't have your back. But it makes a case to invest in hope in what seems like hopeless times. Well, amen to that. And as always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen, on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Wash, thank you for coming. And everybody else, we'll see you later. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. Also, be sure to check out our growing LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. And Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Monday at noon Eastern. Plus, we'd love you to check out our newest show, The Game We're In, with Maya May and Trigby Olson, which airs Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.